I'm Jeff Cohen. Rabbi Simcha Tolwin is a native of Detroit, Michigan. His journey took him through Cleveland, Israel, New York, and back to Michigan where he now leads H Detroit. He's here today to share his own journey and tell us about his inspiring work he does for H. Rabbi Simcha Tolwin, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you for inviting me. So this is going to be a little bit of a different kind of interview because it's sort of going to be a two-parter. On the one hand, I want to get your story. But on the other hand, I want to hear about all the amazing work that you're doing with Aish and some of the folks that you're influencing on their own journeys to Jewish observance. Excellent. All right. So let's let's start with you and just give me a sense. I mentioned in the intro, but where you grew up and how you were raised. So I was born in Jerusalem, uh, in Yerushalayim in 1973. I was born to from home, father learning in Kolo. And uh, we moved to California and from California to Detroit. I've been living in Detroit Grew up in Detroit, went to Yeshiva Beth Yehuda. And uh, from Yeshiva Beth Yehuda, we went, went to the Tells Yeshiva in Cleveland, Ohio. And from Cleveland to the Mir Yeshiva and Yagdal Torah in Eretz Yisrael. So my upbringing was a very classic Yeshivish upbringing. I think if there was anything that separated me from the rest, it's the fact that my parents were always involved in Kiruv. My mother ran Esha Torah in Detroit. Wow. And my father was one of Rabbi Noah Weinberg's first students. He was also FFB from, from birth, but he was learning in Tifrach, and a friend of his recommended that he meet Rabbi Weinberg, and he went to Bnei Brak, to the yeshiva at the time that Rabbi Weinberg was running, called Shema Yisrael. He fell in love with Rabbi Weinberg, followed him to Yerushalayim. So I grew up in a very Kirov-oriented home, and that led me to make an absolute commitment to never be involved in Kirov. <laughs> I remember when I was in Shana Rishon, my first year of marriage, and we were living in Yerushalayim, and my father came with two of his students, Terry Tishol for Sukkis, and they could not figure out why anybody would spend $100 on a lemon. And they, <laughs> they spent the entire Sukkis planning next year how they're going to import lemons that they bought for a dollar and sell them as a srogim. And they couldn't believe that anyone would actually know the difference. And I'm listening to this conversation, I'm thinking, I am not going into Kirov. No way. <laughs> it's 25 years later, and here I am, 25 years in Kirov. All right, so we're, we're going to get into the Kirov story, but I want to back up for a moment and cover a few of the things you mentioned from your childhood. So the fact that you were growing up around parents who were involved in Kirov, I'm guessing you had a lot of exposure, not just to the from families that you were being raised around and you were meeting in school, but you were also seeing families that were at the beginning or the middle parts of their journey. So what do you remember from that time period of your life? Shabbos was always a very, very central part of the Kirov experience. And so our table was always full of guests and we lived in the from community and so we had from guests and non-from guests and it was always very clear to me that we're all one part of Klai Yisrael. Shabbos belongs to everybody. Shabbos is not something that belongs to the from but the non-from don't have it but really it's a gift that's given to the entire Klai Yisrael and watching people who never had Shabbos experience Shabbos was something remarkable. So did you have a perspective on people who were completely secular, who ended up at your dinner table? Were you thinking, if they just got exposure to this, if they just learned what they were missing or never saw when they were growing up, they're probably going to fall in love with it? Or were you thinking, we're going to give them this dinner and it may or may not catch on with them? I think the, the beautiful thing about being raised in a cure of house is that I was five years old, six years old, seven years old, eight years old, nine years old. The beautiful thing about being that young and seeing that from people at your table is that you're not intellectualizing it. You're just seeing people for who they are experiencing Shabbos. So it never really crossed my mind that I recall wondering, 
are they going to keep on observing Shabbos? Or is this going to be the one and done for their Shabbos experience? They were just part of the family. I mean, clearly there was going to be those people that came back over and over again. They became part of the family. And people who just came once or twice, and I don't remember who they are. But it, but part of the beautiful thing about being involved in Kiru from such a young age is that there was never a yardstick. It was just part of what a Jew did. They had Shabbos. And it never crossed my mind, is this something that's going to last or not? Right. So one of the differences in your childhood versus mine, I was raised completely secular with zero exposure to an Orthodox lifestyle. So I never even had the one Shabbos where I could have even seen what it was like. So there was really no point in my childhood all the way through college where I even, one, had exposure to Orthodox Judaism, or two, ever even had to explore, is this a lifestyle I'd want to lead? Because I never really heard of it, even though I was Jewish. You, on the other hand, are being raised completely Orthodox, but you're getting exposure to secular Jews. Is there any questioning as you're getting older? Well, I wonder if they know something that I don't know, or did you always see it as a a one-way trip? That's a great question. Personally, I always saw it as a one-way trip. It never occurred to me that they are making a conscious decision to not have Shabbos, and what do they know about not having Shabbos? (laughs) Shabbos is the default, and what a shame that they don't know about Shabbos. The fact that so many people have been exposed to Shabbos is an absolute miracle. Maybe it's the miracle of Schosavos, the merit of, the, of, the, of, of, your, of your grandparents, your parents. But I remember one of my colleagues from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, Astro Matusio Solomon, that as a cure of organization, could we make it our mission to make people from, to you know, make people Shomer Shabbos? And he said, absolutely not. Because when someone becomes Shomer Shabbos, it's a nace, it's a miracle. It's completely against the grain of society, completely against the grain of everything that most Jewish people are being raised as. And to make your mission statement something which is a miracle is ridiculous. You can't do that. We have a responsibility to expose people to Shabbos, and then people have free will. People will make their own decisions, and people will have schosavos and a miracle. So that's what we're here to do as a cure organization, and what we're here to do really as every, every member of Klal is here to do. So I never thought that there's somebody who knows something more than I know, and that's why they're not keeping Shabbos. They're not keeping Shabbos because of what they don't know, not because of what they know. And that was always pretty clear to me. When I talk to my kids, and my kids obviously are growing up in a cure of house, it's our responsibility is to share what we know. That's what Rabbi Weinberg was always promoting. And that's what you know we know from the very beginning, the, the word lilmo, to learn, is the same word as lame, to teach. And so I'm wondering, did your parents ever talk to you when you were growing up about what their success measures were? Did they ever say, wow, if we can get one person to commit to being observant, or if we can get one person to marry Jewish, like what were the things that they looked at that told them they were doing a good job? They made it very clear that they were finding the issue of intermarriage. Um, and, and if it could stop an intermarriage, that was, you know, you could paint a, you could paint a mug and dove it on your fuselage <laughs> if you could stop an intermarriage, you know. But beyond that, I never heard measurements. And, and I'll, I'll tell you something. Last week, I got a phone call from a religious mother from Lady, who unfortunately, one of her kids went off the derech. One of her daughter went off the derech at 17 years old. And the girl's now 23 years old. And this lady told me that she went out for her daughter's 23rd birthday with her husband. The three of them went out for dinner. And they're sitting down at this kosher restaurant. And the waiter brings out bread. And this totally non-from girl gets up on her own volition to wash and sits down and makes a bracha moti. First time in five years this mother has ever seen her daughter make a bracha. She's telling me the story with tears in her eyes and with such emotion. My daughter, I don't know where it came from, she just got up and she washed and she made a bracha. And so I said to her, yeah, but did she bench? <laughs> and then that's a ridiculous question. Really, yeah. did she bench? 
the beauty of that moment is immeasurable. Right. The Chafetz Chaim says that the mitzvah of Kiruv is the mitzvah of Avas Hashem. In the Sefer Mitzvah Sakatan, he says the way that you fulfill the mitzvah of loving Hashem is by doing Kiruv. Because Hashem, like the Mitzvah Hashem says, is our Father in Heaven. So in Hashem's family, 9 out of 10 kids are off the derech. So if this mother gets so much joy from one bracha, what's the joy that we're giving at Kodesh Baruch Hu? By having, giving one yid the access to do even one mitzvah. So to measure it is absolutely insane. It's like an insane concept to even measure it because to measure would be thinking that Kirov somehow is an Excel spreadsheet that we have to measure our progress. It's not. Kirov is an emotional mitzvah that has to do with Hashem is our Father in Heaven. It's a mitzvah of Hashem. Now that story you just told me though with the restaurant, I took from it that there's hope. Like as far away as someone can go from it, especially someone who was raised with it, who has it in them, that that moment said there's actually hope that if they meet the right person that they could actually come back. And if you can stay optimistic about it and maybe not pressure them too much, that they still might come back in the end. There's absolutely hope for every single person. Um, besides my job as a cure professional, I also have a master's in clinical counseling. And in my experience, when people leave, they grew up from and they leave, there's always hope. There's always hope. No one's leaving for intellectual reasons. Um, they're leaving because of a negative experience. They're leaving because of a deep psychological issue, emotional experience. But there's always hope. And, and that hope is not pinned on, a, on full Shemir Samitzvah. Think of that hope as if we were the parents. Every little action is, is infinitely meaningful. So absolutely. And so I appreciate some of the things you're saying about Kirov, and I want to come back to those a little bit later in the interview. Let's pick up your story, because you mentioned some of the schools you were going to when you were growing up. So as you were in the high school, college years, and you mentioned the experience you were having with Kirov as a child watching your parents, what did you think you were going to be as you started entering high school and college? So I, I went to uh, Tel's Yeshiva for high school, and I wanted to be a principal. Our principal there was Rabbi Dardak Alavashalom, an incredible tzaddik. Uh, and also the principal, we did not treat him well. And I remember at his funeral in Eretz Yisrael, at his kavura, we, someone on behalf of all of us stepped forward and actually asked Mechila from our English principal for perhaps treating him with disrespect, which is something we were definitely guilty of. And I, I remember at some point in my relationship with Rabbi Dardak thinking that I would like to be the principal of a school. And so that was my intention. My intention was to work with, always to be in education, to work with, in, within the from community. And that's where my thoughts were. And even into going to Israel, and when I was learning Yang Torah, I would hang up signs in the German colony where there were a lot of Americans working American jobs, and their kids would get home from Israeli schools like at 2 o'clock, and they had nothing to do with their kids for three, four hours, so we started a tutoring service. So I was always involved and always saw myself you know, in education, but thinking more would be with kids and, and with uh, and that capacity. So here was a surprise. And you also thought you'd become a rabbi along the way if you were thinking of becoming the principal of a school? Uh, no. I was, I was not thinking about becoming a rabbi. The, the becoming a rabbi was along with the Kirov track. It was simultaneous. So I got my smicha actually at Torah with Berkowitz, with Ritzik Berkowitz. Okay, so connect that part of the story. What you, you said you were in high school thinking about becoming a principal, but I know in part of your story you then make it to Israel, so something changes in the trajectory of where your career is headed. Uh, yes, yes. And you know what they say, it's all for the wrong reasons. I entered <laughs> Kirov because at the time, this is I was learning in the Mir Yeshiva uh, in 1997, and uh, Eric Coopersmith started a cure of training program for uh, Kolo guys who they would pay $500 a month if you join their cure of training program and, they would get, and you'd take a job for one year in America in Kirov. $500 a month was very appealing to me at the time. And one year Kirov in America sounded great because we knew we had to go back for my wife to finish her degree in uh, nutrition. 
So it was like, perfect. We'll go back for a year. You'll, you'll finish your degree in nutrition. And so uh, we joined the, the ranks of Kiro for the wrong reasons. Uh, we joined the <laughs> ranks of Kiro because of the $500 a month Kiro training stipend and some of the things I would learn I thought would be interesting. And for the year that we would have to spend in America anyways, as she was getting her degree. Um, there was five of us. We met in my apartment every Friday afternoon. And then after that year was up, I took a job for a year with Asia Tour in New York uh, on the Upper West Side. And, and that year turned into, I mean, this sounds so cliche, but the year turned into 25 years. <laughs> it was an incredible experience there, and we stayed. So let me ask you two questions from everything you just shared. First of all, you mentioned your wife, so I'm curious how she comes into the picture. And the second question is, early in the interview, you mentioned how watching your parents work in Kiev, you thought that's kind of the last thing I'm going to end up doing. So I imagine there was some point along the way while you were working in it where you said, uh-oh, I may have entered this for the wrong reasons, but I seem to be headed on that track. And maybe I have a different perspective on it now as an adult than I did as a kid. So that's kind of a long-winded two-part question for you. Yeah, I think, I think that we all have that moment as we go into adulthood when we have this panic and we say, uh-oh, am I becoming my parents? <laughs> <laughs> so I definitely had that moment, am I becoming my father, am I becoming my mother? And yes, there was a very conscious moment where... I realized that this was going to be my career in direct contradiction to everything I thought. And that moment was we were driving once on the 80 from New York to Cleveland, where my wife is from. And we said to ourselves, you know, what would be so bad if we didn't come back to New York? Like, who would miss us? And we actually made a list of, of all the students that we had, all the programs that we were running. And we said, wow, we really better come back to New York after Shabbos. We, been, we cannot stay in Cleveland. And, and that was a very telling moment that when we actually did a real accounting of how many people and how many programs are being directly impacted by what we're doing. And that was a moment where we said, you know what, this is, this is something we're going to be doing long term. And the part about how your wife comes into the picture and how she got into nutrition and, and is she still in that field or did she end up going into the Kiev world as both of your parents did? So uh, my wife is similar to my background. She grew up in Cleveland. She went to BJJ you know, classic yeshivish seminary, New Shalayim. Her personality is great for Kirov. She says it as it is, does not mince words. And she's fully involved in the Kirov work, not just in terms of hosting, but she actually is the managing director of the Asia Torah branch here in Detroit. So that means that she's responsible for all the programming decisions that we have. She's responsible for all the marketing. She's responsible for managing staff in terms of defining goals and measurables, etc. So she really runs the branch day to day, as well as teaching. She teaches a lot of classes now, especially on Zoom. She has different groups, Chaburas, that they, that they learn together. So she's, she's fully invested. Okay. And so that's a lot of work that's going on in Detroit, but there was a stop in New York prior to that, which you referenced before. So tell me a little bit about the kinds of programs and impact you were making there when you came back from Israel. We were there from 1997 to 2005, and we were there working with Asia Torah on the Upper West Side. It was 83rd and West End. That period was where we really got our feet wet in Kirov, and that was the inspiration why we stayed in Kirov. All of the Kirov efforts that we did in New York really revolved around Shabbos uh, to the extent that we were able to engage the singles community, the non-from-singles community in Shabbos, and they, they stayed. And what the way that happened was that Shabbos was like a, if we had a Friday night program with a Friday night dinner, a Shabbos morning davening with a class, and then people just stayed. Then they would look, okay, I'll well, stay except for Shabbos Shabbos. And like, you know, people would come and say, Rabbi, you know, I think I'm Shomer Shabbos because I... I, I came in Friday and I had dinner with you and then I slept <laughs> over at the Goldars and then I came back and then and now we're having Abdullah. So right, I just kept Shabbos. Like, yes, it was actually not something they thought about and planned, but rather something that they looked back on and said, hey, I could do this. And that's really been our our model for Shabbos now as well. You know, I tell people, look at his bookend. You got Kiddush, you got Abdullah, and I'll just fill it in. 
Um, and we try to just make it easy for people to observe Shabbos by saying, what are you actually going to do when you spend Shabbos? Like we, you know, especially in the from world, we tend to focus on the Shamar, what the Cantus are, and what, what we have to be careful of. But the Zachar, the, the spirit of Shabbos, is what we focus on in Kiruv because practically speaking, uh, if we could fill that 24 hours meaningfully, it's going to make it much easier to keep Shabbos. Um, and people, you know, who are becoming more observant will say, in summer, it's harder. It's just a longer day. How do we fill the time? And how do we make it meaningful? Um, I remember one particular situation where there was a fellow who lived um, in Connecticut, and he, he made the decision he's going to keep Shabbos. And so he planned to close his office early, and he drove down from Connecticut to the Upper West Side. He was a student at Upper West Side, and he hit a massive snowstorm. And he could not make it down the park, you know, down the Hutchinson to get down into, into the city. So he turned around and he said, okay, well, I, I made, already made a commitment to keep Shabbos. So I'll go to the store and I'll buy, you know, some challah and grape juice and I'll do Shabbos in my apartment myself. Not how I planned my first Shabbos to be, but let's do it. So he goes into the grocery store and sure enough, in ShopRite, whatever it is in Connecticut, he sees a bunch of yeshiva bachar. And he's like, look, at what are the yeshiva bachars doing in my hometown in Connecticut? And he sees they're loading up shopping carts of soda. So he goes over to one and says, what are you guys doing here? He says, oh, there's a yeshiva here. And what's all the soda for? Well, the, the rabbi's son is getting married, and it's his for the Shabbos, so we're making Kiddush. He's like, well, can I give you guys a ride? How are you going to get back? Well, we're going to push the carts all the way to the yeshiva. I'll give you a ride. So this fellow gives these boys a ride to the yeshiva. And in the yeshiva, he happens to meet the Rosh Hashiva there, and he stays there for Shabbos. He ends up sleeping in the dorm for Shabbos, or by the Rosh Hashiva for Shabbos, staying there for Shabbos. He ends up not coming to the West Side almost ever for Shabbos because uh -huh. he spends every Shabbos in the yeshiva. And they embraced him. And they kept him there, and he and he became from me. Now is a wonderful, beautiful family in Muncie. You know, we we plan Shabbos, we anticipate Shabbos, but this this Hashem uh, Hashem helps us along in every in every which way. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that time in New York because I was a secular Jewish single in that time period also. And I think if if I had come across your organization, which I didn't at that period in my life, what would have made me want to come to one of your events? And I I would think the only hook when you're completely secular would have been, there's going to be some nice Jewish singles there. And I would have thought, okay, maybe there's a chance to meet a girlfriend or someone I would potentially marry. So I'm wondering, is that the first hook? Like what gets somebody in the door that very first time who has no connection to Orthodox Judaism? I knew the name Jeff Cohn was very familiar. <laughs> I think you did come to H. Where did, which neighborhood did you live in? I did not come to H because I, I was living on the Upper East Side and I, it was just not the time in my life when I discovered it. It came a little bit later. Right. But there are plenty of Jeff Cohen, so I imagine you had about 50 of them through the door. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, you're absolutely correct. The banner wasn't come for Shabbos dinner. The banner was singles events. And we ran singles events, and we would actually make like a $15,000 profit because no one else was doing singles events. This was before J-Date. Uh, there was one singles event in New York that was called the Matzah Ball, and that was the, on the Intrepid. And, um, and, you know, this is in polite audiences, I don't know if this is fair to say, but we really got pretty aggressive about our recruiting. We actually hired models to go to the Intrepid and recruit for our parties. Wow. And there was a company they called Go Gorilla Marketing. Go Gorilla, and mm -hmm. if, you, if you lived in the city. So I knew the guys at Go Gorilla, and they did our advertising for us. So we were pretty forward thinking in terms of how we recruited. And then we would invite people to these big parties. And people came. When they got to our parties, they were actually quite lame because we were halachic, obviously. So right. we could not have dancing. Right. So we would have this, we rent this great bar and we'd serve sushi and great food. But 
the rabbis were giving out the sushi. <laughs> and the dance floor was covered in buffet tables. Like, Rabbi, how are we supposed to dance? There's buffet tables all over the dance floor. Like, That's right. So our parties were lame. And the reason why that's significant is because J-Date actually wanted to, we had, at the same time launched something called speed dating um, as a way for Jewish people to meet Jewish people. And, that, and we were running many, many speed dating events. Thousands and thousands of people were getting involved through speed dating. Um, and we would run these parties. And, and J-Date came to us because we were actually the more significant player in the Jewish single scene in the late 1990s. And they wanted to partner with us. And we couldn't. Again, for our luchic reasons, they were not selective in terms of being careful who's Jewish. They were not selective about the level of the party in terms of dancing, in terms of kosher food. So their parties were just way more fun than ours, bottom line. And so eventually they, they took over that market because of that ability. But that didn't change our success. because The way it worked for us was that we had three levels of age at the time, which was the number one was the outreach level. These were the parties. And we attracted about 2,000 people a year through these parties. And our goal was to get 700 of them into what we call the transition program. Transition program was we would still rent a bar, but we'd have a Torah class at the bar, which was pretty cool. And people came. And then um, after that, of those 700, our goal was to get 200 of those people to be learning twice a month. And so we actually had a very systemized way that we would try to funnel people in. And it was very successful. We had hundreds and hundreds of people that came in, a lot of people that became from through these programs. A lot of those people who became from actually ended up leading and running a lot of these programs, hosting speed dating. So there was really a tremendous community that was built there on the Upper West Side through, through the activities of H. But you're absolutely right. The way that people first came in was, like we started by saying, you know, you have to get people where they're at. You know, the, the language that we talk to from people cannot be the same language that we talk to non-from people. And so if you got somebody who was transitioning through those steps, so they came to an event just to have fun, but now a few months later, they've committed to studying a couple times a month. Do they think that they're on some kind of journey or are they more just exploring Judaism and thinking, oh, I didn't get this as a kid and this is interesting to me? So it depends on the personality of the person. And the very honest individuals say, you guys have me on a journey. <laughs> I'm not interested. I'm out of here, mm -hmm. which is very legit. Uh, the other honest person will say, you guys have me on a journey. This is interesting. I want to stay. The people who are just there for the party, for the social scene, they'll stay, but there's not a lot of growth. And, and there was plenty of those people as well. And some people eventually transitioned into growth. Um, but we, but our, our job is to open it as wide as possible. Ravitsuk Berkowitz, the Rosh Hashiva of Eishat Torah, says that, and, and told us, and says this publicly as often as he can, the Eishat Torah is not a cure of organization. Because the definition of a key of organization is you have to have, you know, you have to be measuring Shemir Shabbos and mitzvahs and et cetera. Asia Torah is an organization that is dedicated to finding the number one Chil Hashem that has ever existed. The biggest Chil Hashem that's ever existed in the history of Israel, which is that no longer are the Jewish people the God people. Uh, Lori Platnick says, you know, if you pass by a building that says God loves you, you know it's not a shul, right? Why not? That we're the God loves you people. Uh, today, most Jews don't even recognize themselves as being Jewish. That's the issue. The issue is not that they're not Shemir Shabbos. The issue is they don't even see themselves as Jewish. They, they, don't even, they have no connection to the Rabbi Shalom at all. And that's what Eishat Torah is here to do, to really create that possibility where a Jewish person could connect to their Judaism and then make a decision. People ultimately have free will. Um, Eishat Torah now has a very aggressive plan within 10 years to reach 3 million people and engage them in Torah. And people will say, well, what about Shemir Shabbos? And how, how's that going to stick if they don't actually do mitzvahs? There's free will. We have to do what we have to do. Our job is to reconnect Klai Yisrael to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's our job. You know, I recently went to a Yarche Kala event for NCSY because I've been doing some work with them. And so I saw several hundred secular Jewish teens, and I'm watching them get exposed to this amazing Shabbos experience. I'm seeing them 
singing the songs, I'm seeing them doing the davening, they're having the meals together, they're off the phones. And I'm looking at all of them because they're basically how I grew up, and they're even getting more exposure than I did because I didn't get to do any of these things as a teen. And I'm just wondering, where do they go from here? I just could not stop thinking they're having this amazing weekend, and where do they go from here? And I'm, now as I'm listening to you, I'm seeing you have to kind of get them to the next step. Did you like what you just experienced? Okay, what can you do with what you like? So I, I imagine you're always trying to see who's getting turned on by this and asking you questions about where this could lead. So is that what you're always like looking for in the people that were coming to your events? Yes, especially when it comes to NCSY. I mean, what you saw at the Shabbaton is, you know, perhaps an opening event. Usually kids that go to Shabbatons are already pretty involved in NCSY. And NCSY is a very clear system from getting them from that Shabbaton to a Yarfik in New York for a week, to a Kolel, then Tarek Yisrael to learn. Um, it's systematic and it's effective. And um, in terms of care of organizations, when you're dealing with, you know, we're community care, so it's family, so it's a little more difficult. But there always has to be a progression. In other words, even when we learn halacha, if someone says, well, Rabbi, you keep super kosher. There's people who keep more kosher than me. We want to always expose people to the maximum. Say, hey, look, this is what it looks like at the end. This is, you know, this is full Shmir Shabbos. So when someone comes into NCSY, it's okay for them to know the goal of NCSY is to get you to take a gap year in yeshiva and learn Torah before you go to college. Now, well, how do you get there? Come to a bunch of programs, learn about us. You know, you come to, you know, H New York, and our goal is to, you know, is for you to raise a from family and meet a Jewish girl. How do we get there? Let's talk about it. So it's, it's very important organizationally that people who come into your organization know what you stand for. And letting people make their own decisions is incredibly important because if you don't, then, especially when it comes to cube organizations, then other people are going to define you. And then they're going to define you in the worst possible way. So it is important for an organization to be clear about what their expectation is for people to walking into the building and to make those expectations clear to those who are participating, the participants as well. So I'm wondering, you're dealing with maybe early 20s type people like at these events in New York. And some of them get turned on. And maybe initially the parents are like, good for you, exploring Judaism. And maybe you're going to meet a nice Jewish girl. And wouldn't that be wonderful for our family? And then when it goes to that next step, I'm wondering how the parents typically react if they see this as a good thing or a bad thing, or if over time their perspective changes on it. So it's, a, it's a great question because it, it is a very common issue that gets blown out of proportion, which is that parents who see their children become religious are in a panic. There's actually organizations that have been started to support parents <laughs> of children who are Bali Chuva. Uh, there's one organization in particular called Pork, Parents of Religious Kids. Uh-huh. Pork. And the reason why it is very difficult for parents is because parents believe that if their kids become religious, no longer will I be able to feed my son or daughter. And what type of mother wants to think that my children will no longer eat out of my kitchen? That's a, that's a very painful prospect. And, and you know, Oh my gosh, my kid's religious. He's not going to come to the Saturday birthday party for cousin for cousin Joey. He's not going to be part of the family anymore. And these are very real concerns that take a tremendous amount of of wisdom to be able to navigate. We say the brach of atochon in ladam das, the brach of intelligence, and in that brach we make the brach of havdala. And the reason is because intelligence is being able to make distinctions, being able to tell my parents, "I'm going to be religious, but I still love your cooking, ma." And I'm still going to attend the birthday parties. I don't know how, but it's going to happen. And a lot of times when people do become from, they tell their parents, this is how it is from now on. And you should be doing this as well. And they create all these ultimatums and these logical arguments that it's just not for in the place where that's not the right situation. I mean, I know somebody that went to Israel to learn. And when he came back, he knew his parents were going to be freaked out because they heard he became Orthodox. And so he dressed up on the plane like as like a you know cool secular 
And so he gets off the plane. He looks pretty normal. But his mother comes running over to him, rips open his shirt, and exposes tzitzis. The mother's <laughs> like, I knew it. You are orthodox. I mean, this is the level of emotion. There was a, a, a girl who became from Adesha Torah in New York, and her, her mother found out that she's going to be wearing a shaitel. And her mother locked herself in a room on a hunger strike and said, I'm not coming out until she promises not to wear a shaitel after she gets married. Is that a logic? No, it's emotional. There's just a lot of emotions going on. And children who are going to become from have to remember that they still have a chiv de rice of kivud of aim. And they have to figure it out. And maybe that's why they're in this world, to figure out kivud of aim. But it's, it's something that requires a lot, of, a lot of thought and a lot of advice. And ideally, the person they should be talking to someone with experience. Because these situations, are, they're always able to be navigated effectively and with a positive outcome. Yeah, well, I had the challenge of thinking that the best short-term solution is to put a little distance between me and my parents. Because you don't want to have this tension in these conversations every time you get together. So you feel this pressure and you say, you know what, maybe I'll just create a little distance for a year or two while I really figure out this lifestyle and then I'll come back. And the, the rabbi that I was working with at the time, Rabbi Benjamin Yudin in Fairlawn, he said to me, that is the worst possible thing to do. At every cost, you have to keep a closeness with your parents because whatever level you're going to get to, you're going to want them in your life. And particularly once you have kids, you're going to want them to be part of that. And so we had to just navigate, how do we keep this relationship close while I'm evolving, which is, it's not easy. It's not a, a one-day thing. It took a few years to kind of get to a, a healthy balance. And I saw my parents did come around more when we had kids and they saw the community side of it. That part they loved. They couldn't quite understand the religious piece of it, but seeing how my kids are being raised in a community with friends and their midos and all that stuff, they said, oh, I actually can see some of the benefits of this lifestyle. Well, it sounds like you followed Rabbi Yudin's advice, which is great. And yes. it sounds like you, you maybe could open a consulting firm now on how to <laughs> help other people navigate the relationship with their parents because it is challenging, but it, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth having that discerning personality and being able to, to apply the wisdom of balance between your, your own religious needs and, and, and respecting your parents. So I mentioned in the intro that you're now in Detroit. So that tells me something precipitated the move from New York to Detroit. So how did that come about? So the move from New York to Detroit was a family decision. As our family grew, uh, no longer was my personality the young singles in New York college scene. And I really wanted to work with families. Uh, as I was a young family, I wanted to, to work in the cure of world with young families. And an opportunity came up in Detroit, my hometown. Again, like I said, my parents had started the Asia Torah branch in Detroit. So we moved back to Detroit in 2007 and working with young families. So... You mentioned how when you were in New York and you were working with singles and now you had a chance to work with families, I would think like a critical point in someone's journey is who they're going to marry and where that person is on their journey. So like I happened to marry someone where we wanted to kind of grow together. So maybe you can share a story or two as you're working with families. You get, say, a guy like really turned on to becoming observant, but now you have to match him up with someone who's going to be like-minded so you can now work with them as a couple and it sort of changes the nature of the work you have to do with them. Right, absolutely. And when working in the singles community, the decision point of that person is who they're going to marry. And then you can find somebody like-minded, whereas when you're coming into a young family situation, their decisions are not who they're going to marry. Their decisions might be where, where my kids going to go to, are they going to go to Hebrew school or day school? And how's our Shabbos going to look? Is it going to be soccer and hockey and ski camp or are we going to go to shul? Um, so it's a, it's a different level of decision. I remember in New York, when working with the singles community, we were competing for people's social time. You have a certain amount of free time. You want to hang out, meet people. So if we could have a party, which is as fun 
as anyone else's, or we could schedule our parties so that people could do both, we're good. With families, it's a lot more difficult because you're not competing for social time, you're competing for family time. And that's a lot more valuable because there's a lot less of it. But the beautiful thing, though, about working with family is that there's a clear motivator. You know, when you're working with the singles community, people are saying, well, you know, when I have kids, I'll worry about it. Okay, now you have kids. What are you, what are you communicating to them? What example are you setting for them? What do you want them to know about Pesach, about Sukkot? And so, so working with families has been incredibly, incredibly rewarding. Um, at the same time, it takes a lot more for a family to take on a religious lifestyle, especially as it comes to Shabbos, because there is a lot of uh, there is a lot of, uh, I remember having a conversation with somebody. He said to me, Rabbi, I'm never going to be observant. My kids have, are fully scheduled every Saturday morning. And if my wife would ever let me out of the house nine o'clock on Saturday morning, I'm going golfing. I'm not going to show, you know, and we had the conversation and he agreed to me. He said, look, I guess if all my neighbors were going to show, I would go to show too. So one of the most important things is, is creating that community, is creating that social environment where that's the thing you do as you go to show. So many decisions that young families make is just, what the community expectation is. So if you could get a critical mass and enough people coming to show on Shabbos, then hey, that's the thing that we do. It's difficult, but it is possible. So I want to ask you about one other angle of Kirov before we go to what's called our lightning round, where I ask you some super fast questions. I'm wondering how the world of Kirov in your mind has changed from what you saw your parents doing to what maybe you were doing in the 90s to what it is today. What, what has changed over that time period? When my parents were doing Kirov, discovery was huge. You could like show people the Bible codes and they'll be blown away and walk away Shomer Shabbos. When I was doing Kirov in New York, Reb Nochheim would say, you're Asia Torah, you got to run discovery seminars and prove God's existence. And we're like, no one's coming. No one's interested in that. People were interested in social events. And that was the way we attracted people. Today, people are not being attracted by Bible codes for sure. Right and wrong is not absolute. Nobody wants to be right, and for sure nobody wants to be wrong, and nobody wants to think that anyone else is wrong. So <laughs> right and wrong does not talk to anybody today. More than ever before, it's authenticity. The Makariv and the Kirov organizations have to be authentic to who they are. There can't be any bait and switch. People have to know what we stand for. Yes, we have a Mechitza. Here is why we have a Mechitza. And if you don't like it, that's fine, but respect my values that I have a mechitza and people will. So I think that the strength that we have to capitalize on is that, A, we have to be much more authentic than ever before, not have any type of bait and switch. B, today's Jewish community is no longer driven by belonging to a synagogue, belonging, having membership. Today, people are open to an a la carte. So they, they see their Judaism almost as a... Um, as a subscription. So you could enjoy Aish for this program and something else for that program. And so we have to accept that we are part of a smorgasbord of a Jewish family's experience. And then, you know, hopefully our, the experience they have with us as part of their smorgasbord will be incredible. They'll want to stick with us and learn with us. But not to think that we're going to own or have a monopoly on anyone. People don't see a value of belonging anymore. They see a value in being able to be everywhere. So I think that's another big change that uh, we're seeing in the Kirov world is embracing this idea that we're part of a, of a person's shemorgos word of learning. I think that the concept of Olami is a, is a large Kirov organization. They're kind of an umbrella for a lot of the young professional and college Kirov places. And it's really the reflection of the Kirov world today. You know, somebody walks in and they have a student and the student is their student, but the reality is that the, the student's sister went to NCSY, 
their brother was in the University of Indiana. This guy himself had gone to Israel or some other place, and they ended up, they landed with this rabbi. So this rabbi might feel like, oh, he's my guy, you know, but he's 18 people's guys. You know, there's a village here. And that's becoming more and more apparent um, in the Kiev world today, that um, that the Kiev world is a village. And if you're involved in community Kiev, you're going to interact with team Kiev, you're going to interact with college Kiev. Uh, and and a really important market is the empty nester cure because the empty nesters have time and resources and, and are looking for meaning. That made me think of one more cure of question I wanted to ask you. Something that my wife and I think a lot about. We have three kids, and we say with all the time that we've put into our own growth and getting to the point that we're at, like how heartbroken we would be if all three of our kids or even one of them turned eighteen and was like, eh, not for me, and just threw it away. And we would think. What did we do this whole thing for ourselves if it didn't get passed to the next generation? So I'm just wondering, do you, as part of the work you're doing in Kirov, are you dealing with families where it's about Kirov on religious families to keep them that way? And how much of that do you see as an issue compared to dealing with secular people that you're trying to get on the beginning of the journey? I think one of the realities of Kirov organizations today is that the front line of Kirov is from families that have kids off the derech. If you're asking a separate question in terms of how, as families, we should react, I remember listening to a speech by Rabbi Pesach Kron many, many years ago, and he described a scenario where a three-year-old was chasing after a ball. And in his race for the ball, he said, my yarmulke is getting in the way. It's going to blow off. So he took his yarmulke off his head and like held on to it as he was running. The mother screams from the sidelines, Yanko, put your yarmulke back on your head. And Rabbi Kron said, well, why is she yelling? Why is she yelling at Yanko, put the yarmulke in her mind, she's seeing an 18-year-old kid running through the streets without a yarmulke on. We project. As parents, so much of our fear is projection. The moment is totally fine. Right. I think that as parents, if we would parent in the moment, it would be a lot more joyful. But if we parent through a projection of fears of what will be, am I doing a good enough job? It's really what hijacks our parenting to a large extent. And especially in from families, because in a non-from family, what do you want from your kids? You want them to go to Ivy League school and make money. We want our kids to make money and be Shemir Shabbos and eat kosher and only marry a from girl and marry the right family. We pile on so much pressure on our kids and so much pressure on ourselves that we sometimes as parents fall into the trap of, of projecting and, and letting that projection hijack the joy of parenting. So I would say, parent in the moment, enjoy the kids in the moment when they're seven years old, eight years old, nine years old, and, and Mir Tashem, that joy will make sure, will ensure that their 18, 19, 20-year-old years will also be amazing. Beautifully said, and the perfect transition to our lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a few super fast questions. Are you ready? Sure. Okay, first one. What's one of the most interesting or unique questions that a secular Jew ever asked you about living an observant life? Do you ever take a break? <laughs> you mean like just not be religious for a month? Yeah, like a 100% honest question. And how do you respond to that? No. All right. So question number two, what do you think is a misconception that secular Jews have about living an observant lifestyle? That it's not fun. Why do you think they think that? People believe that rules are the contradiction to fun. I think as a from person, we recognize that having boundaries and having guidelines allow us to have a lot more fun. My father-in-law uses the example. He said, imagine a bunch of kids playing soccer on a cliff, right? They're going to keep far away from the edge because the ball could go over, they could go over and die. So imagine one day you put a fence up at the edge of the cliff. Now you play a lot closer to the edge because you have a fence. 
So from people, we're, we have an incredible quality of life. I, I mean, in what other lifestyle do you have an opportunity to sit around and have a meal with no phones twice in 24 hours <laughs> for three or four hour meal longs? I mean, it's incredible. For sure. Okay, so how many Jewish marriages would you say have come out of all the work you've done over the years, if you had to give me an estimate? About 130. 130. Wow. And how many of those would you say continued their journey and, and got to a, a from place as a family? No, I'm sorry. So 130 are, are from marriages. Wow. And I would say 98% of those are from uh, time in New York when we're dealing with singles. Uh, in, D in Detroit, I've done about five or six weddings. Wow, it's beautiful. Okay, last question. What could we expect to be served if we were traveling through Detroit and stopped at your table for a Shabbos meal? Best chant you've ever had. It sits in a Dutch oven for 24 hours before you will enjoy it at 12 o'clock on Shabbos afternoon. It sounds delicious. You're going to have some people knocking on your door next Friday afternoon. Can't wait. Don't come out to Shabbos because we don't have leftovers. Beautifully said. Rabbi Simcha Tolwin, thank you for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you for having me. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit TachlisMedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.